0: Speaking of Mississippi is produced by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and made
1: possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi.
0: As indigo, rice, and tobacco returns fell, and the profits from cotton skyrocketed, slave traders presided over a forced migration in the United States. More than half a million enslaved people were trafficked from upper south states, such as Virginia and North Carolina— and sold in states of the Deep South, such as Louisiana and Mississippi. Members of the slave trading profession were viewed as necessary evils held in contempt by polite society. Or so the story goes. The truth is that far from being social outcasts, those men were rich and widely respected businessmen. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we'll explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin, our guest today is Joshua Rothman, whose book The Ledger and the Chain chronicles the operations of the largest slave trading company in the United States, which happened to have one of its main offices in Natchez. I think at the mention of the slave trade, many people are likely to think of ships crossing the Atlantic Ocean. You focus on the domestic slave trade, and you write that between 1800 and 1860, U.S. slaveholders sent about one million black people from the Upper South to the Lower South, moving in 60 years, more than twice as many people as were transported in two centuries via the transatlantic slave trade. Why had the market for enslaved people shifted
1: southward? So the short answer to that is cotton and sugar. Um, You know, the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 opens up entire new vistas and opportunities for White farmers, planters, people who were aspiring to be farmers and planters, um, who saw opportunity, particularly in the cotton revolution, which had really started maybe five or ten years before that, in places like um, like Western Georgia, like the Mississippi Territory, um, but of course, you know, having New Orleans secured as a port that actually belongs to the United States or that the United States lays claim to, um, you know, creates a, a, a an outlet. Onto the into the Gulf of Mexico and onto the Atlantic that was less secure before that, and so between the um, the sort of economic possibilities that are opened up simply in terms of infrastructure and the economic possibilities that are opened up in terms of land, uh, you have. White farmers who are moving into this territory really by the tens of thousands, um, they know what they're going for. They know that the the opportunity is there to grow cotton. Uh, In lower Louisiana, the opportunity is there to grow sugar. Um, There's a sugar tariff that gets put in place in the the first decade of the 19th century that provides an incentive for American farmers to try to grow sugar. Um, And both of those uh, commodities are dependent very heavily in this period on slave labor. And so, you have that happening at exactly the same time that the transatlantic slave trade is being closed. Um, The law is put into place in 1808, and that uh, makes importing enslaved people from overseas illegal. And so, the only place you could acquire enslaved laborers who are in such high demand in the Lower South, the only place you could get them was domestically. And so, really, what this does—that the, the, the coming together of all of those things—really propels a domestic slave trade forward in ways that it hadn't really existed before. That,
0: yeah, right. And then your book, *The Ledger and the Chain*, is subtitled "How Domestic Slave Traders Shaped America," and it tells the story of Isaac Franklin, John Armfield, and Rice Ballard. And you write in it that by 1828, they were successful slave traders, but they wanted more. You write, they shared an affinity and a talent for their particular kind of American entrepreneurship in which white men made themselves on the difference between what black people had been exploited for in one place and what they could be exploited for in another.
1: Yeah, so my my point there is is – sort of several things. Um, One is that I do think it's important to recognize and try to come to terms with the fact that slave traders in the United States in the first half of the 19th century, they were entrepreneurs. They considered themselves entrepreneurs. They are participating in a business that, uh, however horrific to modern sensibilities and however horrific to the sensibilities even of some people at the time, it was a legal business and a legitimate business. Um, there was there was no federal law against it. If anything, the federal laws actually incentivized it by banning the transatlantic trade, right, and doing nothing about the domestic one. Um, state laws there were state laws in place in some places here and there that tried to either uh, uh, sort of makes you know. Put some tax laws on the slave trade, or try to limit the slave trade. But it's a legal business, and these were men who thought that was a good way to make money. Um, they many of them fashioned themselves as sort of self-made men in that kind of so sort of what was coming to be a sort of classic American model. Uh, and so part of what I'm trying to get across in that idea is that they are entrepreneurs, which I think is is something that I don't condone by saying it, but I think that. It's important for readers to understand that that's the model we're working in and to, to try to figure out for the, for themselves, what, what does that mean about the evolution of American values and American capitalism? The other thing I'm trying to get across in there, uh, and I do say specifically, right, that I don't say that white men were trying to make money in that quote, that is what they're doing, right? But what I also say in there specifically is that white men made themselves, right? And that again is part of this idea that, and, and in some ways it's sort of running counter to that self-made man, right? It's, it, that What I'm trying to do with that language is actually sort of demonstrate on the one hand that they considered themselves entrepreneurs and self-made men, but also sort of undercut that and demonstrate what that really meant, which is, Sure, they might think of themselves as self-made men, but what they're really making themselves on um, are the the bodies of the Black people that they are buying and selling and moving across the country.
0: So those three, um, Franklin, Armfield, and Ballard, establish a business that spans from Alexandria, Baltimore, Richmond, down to Natchez and to New Orleans. Um, Tell us a little bit about what they did differently than other folks, how they sort of changed and, and innovated and became um, eventually the top of the, the game for it.
1: Yeah. So some of what Frank, so Franklin and Armfield, uh, the, the two main partners in the company are Isaac Franklin and John Armfield. They, they found the company together in 1828. Uh, they bring Rice Ballard on a few years later and make him a third partner. And, and they do that in part because he brought capital with him, right? He brought experience with him. Um, he also brought a connection to the market in Richmond with him, which allowed them to sort of have kind of poles in the upper South of Alexandria and Richmond. And then in the lower South, they had Franklin working out of Natchez. They brought his nephew in at one point so they could work out of both Natchez and New Orleans at the same time. So they've got kind of two poles in in each part of the South. but. What really kind of makes that company, and the company is Franklin and Armfield, and what makes it different is in part, some of what they're doing is building on what a couple other people had done before that. Um, the first slave trader, sort of long distance slave trader to really operate on the model that they were, was a guy named Austin Woolfolk, um, who was working out of Maryland, really starting in the 1820s. Um, and he does a lot of the things that they did. Um, he didn't exactly pioneer any of them, but he he's really the first one to bring all these things together. And among the things he does is, instead of working out of a, you know, a bar or a hotel somewhere, he had a regular headquarters, he had a, a regular place of business, you knew where to find it. Um, he had a network of agents who worked for him so he could kind of project himself across the countryside. He's got really about half a dozen relatives who are working with him and for him at any given time um, and he's sending people a lot by ship. Um, you know the image we have in our head of the domestic slave trade and it's reasonable that we have that image but it's an image of the the slave coffle right people people in chains uh, all chained together in a line being marched across the country. And that is predominantly how people are moved in the slave trade, particularly if they're not moving over very long distances, if they're moving within a state as opposed to you know, across state lines. Um, and Wolfolk did some of that too, but he also starts sending people by boat. Uh, shipping them out of Baltimore um, and sending them down the Atlantic into the Gulf of Mexico, and then they land in New Orleans. Um, and he had started actually sending people to Georgia, but eventually they move over, they move a little west over to New Orleans. Um, so that's kind of the basic model for these big domestic slave trade companies. Now, what Franklin and Armfield do is they do a lot of what Wolfook had done. Um, they do it a lot bigger than he did, um, and frankly, they did it better than he did. Um, and, and if there's one sort of key innovation that I think really sets them apart, it's not even so much that they model what Wolfo does. because if you look at them on uh, superficially, they look pretty similar in terms of their business operations. What really what Franklin and Armfield are able to do that kind of sort of sort of sets them apart and makes them able to become so much bigger, Is the money um isaac franklin was somebody who by 1828 by the time the company is founded he'd been a slave trader by that point for 20 years he'd been working in the markets in in maryland and virginia he had a regular sort of business location in natchez he'd been to new orleans many times he knows all kinds of very prominent very wealthy people. He has a lot of connections to um, to merchants and to banks and he's able to establish credit lines for the company. Uh, most slave traders preferred to work on cash, right um, They paid cash in the upper South and in the lower south they preferred to sell for cash because they didn't want to have debts that they had to keep coming back and collecting right they wanted to bring people one point point a to point b sell them for cash money and then disappear and then go back and do it again but what franklin realizes and has the connections to pull off is that look if i'm willing to sell on credit and if i'm will if i'm able to get access to credit then for one thing I can have my partners buy far more people than anybody else can because we have access to more money than anybody else does. And we can sell those people to a much wider array of customers because not everybody has cash money right up front that they want to spend. But there are a lot of people who are willing to borrow money or to buy something on on credit that they can pay for later. Um, and so that is really what enables franklin and armfield I think to get so big so quickly um, and they do so in fact so successfully that uh, they 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 don't quite put austin wolffolk out of business but they really um you know once they get established as slave traders austin Wolfolk's business is never the same again
0: and and that's a, a really integral part of the book and one of the most interesting things about it is the Sort of forensics work that you're able to do on the finances of this company over time, um, which as far as I can tell is, is unique in looking at the inner workings of a slave trading organization like that.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, look, there have been some other scholars who obviously have been delving into this in some way or another, sure. right? thinking about the relationship between the slave trade and and the way banking and finance is also evolving in the United States. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think what the book does probably at least in more detail than anyone else is it really hones in on this one company as an example of, you know, I, I think even when people think about the slave trade, if you ask them, well, how does that work? Well, they think how it works is basically well, a slave trader goes to you know some slaveholder and you know buys an enslaved person and then gets them to someplace else and then sells them to another slaveholder and then pockets the difference. Broadly, that is true, but in practice, it's way more complicated than that. First of all, there's way more people involved. Than right. That. Right, So you've got slaveholders and slave traders, you have the agents of slave traders, you have ship captains, you have government officials, you have uh, uh, in Louisiana, you had notaries, you have bankers, you have customs agents, all kinds of people who are involved in any one sale. Um, But the other thing is that, yeah, I mean, the the way the money actually operates and the way it circulates is, it is much more, there are a lot more steps involved in figuring out how all this works. And I think that the book really gets into those steps and kind of lays plain how all of this works in ways that not very many other scholars have done. Um, and And that I think is actually really revealing in some ways, right? It's that because by stretching out those networks and demonstrating the money, the, the 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 number of people and the number of of government entities that are implicated in all of this that circle gets wider and wider and wider you can't just say well it's just the slave traders did that that's not what it is everybody did this that's right
0: i mean it lays plain all that but it's still a complex story that you
1: tell oh, yeah yeah involves- Well, i hope it's, i hope it comes across clearly enough cuz i know yeah. It, it, yeah. it it can be complicated
0: well and it does and i think that it ranges between um you know, sort of deep dives into credit lines and and the things that that makes um, possible, and really um, a, a real world look into the infrastructure, like you had talked about, um, where you know instead of taking place at a tavern, these transactions and and the discussions about the transactions are taking place in what is effectively an office space, but with a private prison adjoined to it. That's right. Um, could you say a few words actually about how those pens and, and prisons operated and looked? Sure.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I mean, I don't want to leave anyone with the impression that, you know, you pick up this book and all you're going to get is, uh, you know, dollars and cents and credit negotiations and things like that. It's hard to make, it's hard to make drama out of that. right? Right. Um, and there's, there's, there's a lot more in the book, um, and a lot more, uh, uh, Sort of storytelling in the book, and and um, you know, particularly, you know, given the, the the enslaved people on the other side of these transactions, a lot more storytelling that delves into what their experiences were like. And I think the the slave pen and the slave jails are really central to that, right? Because what you had, you know, take take John Armfield's headquarters in Alexandria, right? Basically, what you have there is Armfield working out of a townhouse, right? So if you approach this building from the street what you would see is a big sort of three-story fancy townhouse that used to be a place where a lawyer and his family lived. Um, But when Armfield gets a hold of it, within a couple of years, it's a townhouse that has a big sort of whitewashed brick wall that goes all around the outside of it. And so while Armfield's doing business in the front, right, talking to customers, making negotiations, all you had to do was walk maybe 15 feet out the back door and all of a sudden you're in a jail. the it, the 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 facility took up about half a city block. Um, there could be as many as two to three hundred people kept in the back. Um, most of the facility is a sort of open air pen. Um, you know, the wall is probably about fifteen feet high, mm-hmm. so so you couldn't see in from the outside, and you you really couldn't effectively climb over it. It's it's almost impossible. Um, it's divided in in half so that. Uh, enslaved men and boys were on one side enslaved women and very small children were on the other um, people were sort of let out into the open air during the day it was where they um, you know passed the time and would eat and and um, really sort of they're, they're mostly waiting to be transported to wherever they're going to go next right um, but also in this facility you know there's a there's a barracks which is uh um effectively a, a kind of a long building with, with grated iron on the doors yeah. that people were kept in at night and kept in chains while they slept. Um, there's a, a, a kitchen, a tailor shop, a hospital. Um, it really is a, a, a sort of all-purpose uh, facility for buying, selling, and, and really storing enslaved people as yeah. they were moving their way through the market.
0: The Museum of Mississippi History traces the early days of King Cotton in the Joining the United States Gallery, which covers the years 1799 to 1832, and the Cotton Kingdom Gallery, which covers 1833 to 1865. Mississippi went from producing virtually no cotton in 1800 to 70 million pounds by 1833, the state's enslaved population grew from just under thirty-five hundred people to more than sixty-five thousand during those three decades. And in those early statehood years for Mississippi, um, the state's native population plays a role in this as well, because their forced removal sort of is what opens up the state for the the development of enslavement and the need for all of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the other, you know, I mentioned the, the role of, of government entities in all of this, right. And and what the, the federal government does effectively to sanction the slave trade is not only create a, a, a protected market for the slave trade, right. Because by shutting off any other markets, it basically tells domestic slave traders, look, you, this is all yours. There's not going to be any foreign competition here. Um, but what the federal government also does to um to improve the fortunes of slave traders is particularly in the in the 1820s and eighteen thirties, it's going in and, and uh you know expelling uh Indian nations from their land. Uh the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Cherokee, um, and on and on and on. And it basically sort of eliminating the claims of those people to their land and expelling them from their land what that effectively does is open up all kinds of new vistas for the expansion of the cotton frontier and obviously you know the federal government makes that possible but what's also interesting about that is not only that the land you know all this activity is taking place on stolen land right that's what makes the slave trade possible but the land is is taken by the federal government. The federal government then surveys it, sells it at auction to white men. The money from the auctioned off land goes into the federal treasury and to the national bank, which then pumps it right back into the Southwest and into the plantation economy. Right, So you have this this cycle where the government is expropriating land from people, selling it for profit. Putting the profits into the government coffers, and then putting the government coffers back into the market to uh, to 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 help finance um, uh, cotton and plantation. So it's really um, it's 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 very twisted in lots of different ways that aren't sort of immediately self evident.
0: That's right. That's exactly right. And those are some of the things that the book does well that tells that story. Um one other thing that it tells is the effects of Nat Turner's uprising all the way down into the slave states and in Mississippi and um and it really had far ranging effects.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, you know, Nat Turner is something that that terrifies white people pretty much everywhere in the South and probably other parts of the country too. Um the impact that it really has on the lower south, though, is um it's interesting because it's it's widespread, but it's actually also temporary, right? So, so you know, Nat Turner's Rebellion happens in Virginia, and you have states in the Lower South, places like Mississippi and Louisiana, who all of a sudden what they're really worried about or they say they're worried about is not so much rebellion. What they're worried about is slave traders bringing them more enslaved people from Virginia who might themselves be from these areas of rebellion. And so what they try to do is they actually try to limit or ban the slave trade. Um, The problem for these states that try to do this though is that slaveholders really, really want enslaved people. And so the bans that are put in place, they're either ineffective or they don't last very long. Essentially, what happens is that within a year or two... You know, once white people in the lower South decide, well, it looks like the whole Nat Turner thing maybe is blown over, then they just open the slave trade right back up again. So, yeah, the effects the effects are everywhere in the region, but they are um, they are always trumped by what white people think is in their own self interest.
0: You write in the book that uh, some of the efforts by governments and local municipalities to rein in some of the slave trade. Uh, we're not really about containing the size of the slave trade anyway, but rather they were about allowing it to continue while protecting white people's sensibilities, anxieties, and insecurities.
1: Yeah, and what I mean by that is that even when states and localities didn't ban the slave trade, what they would do is they would try to put Sort of geographic limits on where it could operate. So yeah. in Louisiana, for example, in New Orleans, um, there comes a point in New Orleans in the 1820s where, you know, the city of New Orleans at the time was basically what's now the French Quarter, right? That right. was the core of the city, and everything outside of it was technically a suburb, right? Um, so if you get down, sort of downriver, you're in the Maroney. Upriver, you're in the American sector. Right. Technically, those were suburbs then. And what the city government does is says at one point, you know, you can't operate inside the city. You have to go outside the city. So what people like Isaac Franklin would do is, you know, it, just like today. At the time, uh, Esplanade was the 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 ed, the, the downriver edge of the French Quarter, and that right. was the border of the city. So what Franklin does is he says, okay, well, I'll just open up across the street, literally across the street. Right. Um, on the on the downriver side of Esplanade was in the suburb. The upriver side technically was in the city. Good to go. Um, Natchez does something similar, right? right. Uh, when Natchez bans the slave trade, they do it in large part because of Isaac Franklin. Um, he, gets, he gets caught dumping... Uh, dead bodies in a ravine during a cholera epidemic. He doesn't want anyone to know that the people he's offering for sale uh, uh, have the cholera among them. Um, The city discovers this. There were people in the city who were kind of uncomfortable with this for a while. They just just didn't think it looked good Mm -hmm. to have slave traders operating everywhere. Now, when Franklin gets caught dumping dead bodies, now that all of a sudden becomes, you know, epidemiologically really dangerous. They're afraid but they're not so afraid that they tell people you know slave traders you got to really get out of here. Instead what they do is okay, well, you can't really operate in town limits. So Franklin says, "Okay, that's why you have Forks of the Road." Right. Forks of the Road is as close as you could get to the city boundaries of Natchez without actually being in the city. Um and those are just two places, but you know there are places that do and the, the laws change over time. Sometimes they would let them back into the city. You know, Natchez experiments at different points in time with certain districts in the city where you could be and others you couldn't. Um, both Natchez and New Orleans passed regulations at a certain point that says, okay, well, if you're going to sell people in the city, you have to keep them kind of out of sight, yeah. right? They had to be behind a, a high enough wall so that nobody could see them. You couldn't sort of parade them down the street. Um, so yeah, lots of cities both in the Lower South and the Upper South kind of experiment with these things. but all of those regulations are designed by policymakers to say, okay, we can't really get rid of the slave trade and we don't really want to. We just want to make it as um, as safe and as palatable for white people here as we can. And so that that is really what a lot of those regulations are designed to do.
0: Yeah. Uh, there's a quote in your book attributed to John Brown, who says the slave pin is only another name for a brothel.
1: Yeah. So that's not the John Brown of, of, right, not Perry, John, John Brown. Problem. This is right, an right, right. enslaved man named John Brown. Um, and you know, he was, what he was commenting on there was something that, um, many enslaved people commented on. And that was absolutely true. Um, and that even Franklin and Armfield and Rice Ballard, um, commented on in their own correspondence and, and made jokes right. about, which was essentially right. that you know, enslaved women taken into the slave trade, particularly young enslaved women, uh, were often sexually assaulted, raped, um, otherwise sort of sexually humiliated. Um, that was part and parcel of what made the slave trade work. Um, it was the reason why some slaveholders Bought young enslaved women. Uh, right. There's sort of a subset of the slave trade that was uh, kind of colloquially known as the fancy trade. Right. Um, it's essentially a, 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 it's essentially the sex trade. Um, and so some women are trafficked for those purposes. And and so when John Brown says, you know, the slave pen is just another name for a brothel. Basically, what he meant is, you know, you have all these young women who are being offered for sale, and and everybody knows what exactly the purpose of that is. Um, and that's something that really. Um, You know, it's endemic, it's endemic to slavery and it's endemic to what makes the slave trade work.
0: Yeah. And, and you can tell that story, um, not using specifics, but, but you're able, um, to include the story of Martha Mm
1: Sweart. I'm not sure if that's how the name is pronounced. I think that's how it's pronounced. Yeah. It's a Virginia name.
0: Yeah. Which, I mean, really, um, it puts a name and and a face to the atrocities.
1: Yeah. So, and, and I can't. You know, claim credit for being the first person to tell her story. Uh, uh, Calvin Schermerhorn, who is also also a, a great scholar of the slave trade, um, uh, in his book, which came out a few years before mine, he's got a chapter on Franklin and Armfield in which he he also talks about her story, um, but, but there's her story and there are several others, but her story comes up a lot because she was somebody who Franklin and Armfield and Ballard really talked a lot about in their letters. And she is a a young woman who is purchased um, near Charlottesville in central Virginia in the early 1830s. She is 16 years old. Um, She is brought down to Natchez. She is, by what we can tell, not actually sold. Um, She is instead kind of kept by Franklin um, and his nephew. And they are uh, um, repeatedly sexually assaulting her, raping her, writing about what they're doing in their letters. Uh, they send her back to Virginia at one point uh, where Rice Ballard does the same thing. Then B- Ballard sends her back to Natchez. At a certain point, she, she's really passed back and forth for about two years. Um, at a certain point, it seems she becomes pregnant. Um, it's not clear by who, um, it's not clear entirely even what happens to her. Right. Um, but her story, what stands out about her story is that we can actually sort of follow it through right. their letters. Her story, though, is not unique. Um, in fact, I think it's far more common than we than we recognize. And you know, even though I was unable to to tell the the stories of too many other women in that kind of detail. It's very obvious from Franklin and Armfield's purchasing records and their sales records that this is happening all the time. I mean, you can see it in the prices, Um,
0: you know, if they're selling,
1: selling, you know, young enslaved men in New Orleans for five or $600 and they're selling an enslaved women, an enslaved woman in New Orleans for seven or $800, there's only one real explanation for that. You know, sometimes look. You know, people who had particular skills sold for more money. But you know, you know, a a, a sort of nineteen-year-old woman who who is described as being light-skinned, especially everybody knew what that meant, Um, and and you see that over and over and over again in the sales records. So Martha Stewart's story, which is horrifying in its own right, um, is not is not nearly. Uh, the only example of, of 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 what could happen to to young women and caught into the trade, right?
0: You uh you look at the lives of Isaac Franklin, John Armfield, and Rice Ballard. Um, you track their business venture together, which really does not last all that long.
1: It's less than ten years.
0: Yeah, and you note that uh, entrepreneurial spirits, though they were, uh, they were also Successful because at that particular time, all the elements for a successful slave trading operation were in place, and um, they do not die penniless and uh, and unknown. I mean they.
1: Yeah, um, you know, uh, so. Rice Ballard and Isaac Franklin both died before the Civil War. Um, Franklin dies in 1846. He's the oldest of the three. Not that he's old when he dies. When he dies, he's 56, I think. Um, and uh, But he is the oldest of the three. After he retired from the slave trade, he, uh, through sort of a complicated story, ends up uh, coming into possession of about 7,700 acres and several hundred enslaved people in Louisiana um, in West Feliciana parish, which is sort of just underneath the border of Mississippi. Right. Um, so, and by the time he dies, he is the, someone who enslaves about 600 people. Uh, he owns half a dozen plantations in Louisiana, another plantation in Tennessee. Uh, he owns land in, in Texas. He's an investor in banks and railroad companies and all sorts of other things. He's tremendously wealthy. Um, when he dies it's. His obituary appears literally every state in the country. Um, it, there, his obituary runs yeah. in some way or another. Rice Ballard, uh, after he retires from the slave trade, um, starts a, a essentially a, a plantation investment business with another another man, uh, a guy from Natchez named Sam Boyd, who is a, a judge and a lawyer, and they buy up plantations in Mississippi, uh, Arkansas, Louisiana. Um, they're, they they buy and sell lots of places. There may be half a dozen that they hold on to and, and use for cotton production, but they also are flipping a bunch of places. Um, by the time Ballard dies, he and his partner enslaved more than 400 people. Um, he dies in 1860, so right before the Civil War begins. Um, but again, extremely wealthy, uh, very respected. His his obituary isn't isn't nationally spread, but but it's the kind of thing that everyone who ran an obituary was like, oh, you know, he was a, a well-respected citizen of our place, that kind of thing. Um, now, John Arnfield is the only one who outlives the Civil War. Right. And at the time of the Civil War, he's extremely wealthy. Um, it's unclear exactly how much money he has. It's probably it's somewhere between half a million and a million dollars in in pre-civil War money, which was you know, just by inflation alone is equivalent to tens of millions. Um, he does not go into the plantation business though. he he had no interest in that, never did. Um, instead, he buys a resort hotel in the Tennessee mountains and basically becomes this sort of entrepreneur catering to rich white Southerners who wanted someplace nice to go on some vacation in the mountains. Right. And um, again, very well respected, draws the patronage of, of bankers and merchants and planters from all over the South, um, particularly the lower South. Um, now, the Civil War does make a huge dent in his finances. Um, he loses a lot of money. Um, because for him, he- so
0: much of the wealth was in enslaved people.
1: Oh, it's it's if it's not it's it's not even so much that it's in enslaved people. He actually personally does not enslave that many people. Um, by the time he dies, but his money is deeply embedded in the slave economy. Yeah. Um, and so when it gets wiped out, he is wiped out. Yeah. Um, he doesn't die poor. Uh, but he dies. Uh, uh, you know, significantly diminished from what he had been. But nonetheless, when he does die. Just because he didn't have money didn't mean that he didn't have that respectability that he'd accumulated over the years. And so when he does die um, in Tennessee on that mountaintop, the obituaries that run about him talk about what a philanthropist he was and what a good Christian he was. Um, you know, a, a, a friend to all people. You know, this, this sort of entrepreneur of this really fancy resort that everybody came to for years. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, even when they didn't have money, they still had their reputations, which is sort of out of keeping with what we think of slave traders' reputations being.
0: Yeah. And they um, they have a, a lot of legacies. Um, you do the math in the book, you have um, as, a, as a total um, that can be tracked, they moved more than 6,600 people over the course of that decade from north to south, the actual number you suspect is probably more like 8,500. And then when yeah, you yeah, I've, them- I've been able
1: to document like actual evidence, specific right. evidence for 6,600 or so. But I also know that there are shipments that they make that there's no record right. for. I know that there are slave coffles that they send, there's no record for. And if you can sort of, you can estimate it. And right. I, I, yeah, I think the, the company all told sells probably between eight and 10,000 people.
0: Yeah. Just an astonishing number of people moved um, their lives, totally disrupted. uh, And uh, the lives of those three um, still reach forward uh, with connections to institutions and um, other affairs. Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, I think the you Know the most tangible connections you can see. Um, you know, the physical land, the physical infrastructure of Franklin and Armfield really hasn't survived. Um, the townhouse in Alexandria is still there. Yeah. Um, it is uh, uh, it is just about to reopen. It has been long been a, a small museum uh, to the slave trade, but it has undergone recently a lot of renovations, a lot of updates, and it's about to. I think it's reopening next month um, in Alexandria. And I, I strongly encourage people if they're in the area to go visit. Um, but in terms of, of other institutional legacies, you know, uh, one of Isaac Franklin's plantations in Louisiana was called Angola. Um, all of his land ultimately became the the core of what's now Louisiana State Penitentiary right. at Angola. Um, you know, John Armfield was one of the, the leading figures in helping get uh, what's now the University of the South off the ground, the uh, also known as Swanee. Um, that's still there. Um, when, uh, when Isaac Franklin died, almost all of his money went to his widow. His widow then remarried um, a lawyer from Alabama, a guy named Joseph Aquin, who then became himself one of the biggest slaveholders in Louisiana. Right. They, in the 1850s, built themselves a country home just outside of Nashville called Belmont. Uh, the Belmont mansion is still there. And uh, Belmont University, which is directly is right next to it. The mansion actually might technically be on the grounds. I can't remember. Um, but the university was created inside Belmont Mansion, so there are lots of places where you can see kind of tangible bits and pieces of their legacy. Um, but but I think actually their legacy is much broader than that, right? People ask me all the time, "Well, you know, where's the money?" Yeah. And the truth is, the money isn't really in any one place in particular anymore. Um, the money is kind of everywhere now. Um, because it was always everywhere, right? The, 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 the profits that are spun off of the slave trade, the cotton and the sugar that the enslaved people trafficked in the trade produced all of that money, all of those profits, they circulated all over the country. They circulated across the Atlantic ocean. And, you know, generationally that money just gets passed down family to family, person to person, bank to bank. Um, and so tracing it, the specific dollars, where do they go is really difficult. But I think in the grand scheme of things, it's because those dollars are all around us.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that, again, is is what the book does so well. The book opens and closes uh, with anecdotes about Natchez. And I wonder if you would um, be so good to tell us about the Forks of the Road site, the slave pens that were there, and the ending of those.
1: Sure. So like I said before, you know, when the when the city of Natchez finally, you know, kicks the slave traders out of the city, you know, Franklin sets up shop at what's now the Forks of the Road. Um he wasn't the very you know, there were there were businesses out at the forks of the road. There was already a a a kind of some kind of mercantile district there. Um he wasn't the very first person to sell enslaved people there. Right. But because he is so much the biggest player in town, once he starts operating from there, all the other slave traders also have to find someplace else to go. Um, They kind of gravitate out there alongside him. And so really pretty quickly within a few years of Franklin establishing a place out there, there's probably half a dozen people who have also set up Shops at the Forks of the Road, and and you know we have descriptions from the mid 1830s of people going out there and describing sort of the stockades of enslaved people, and the Forks of the Road remains one of the biggest slave trading districts in the entire South until the Civil War. Now, when the Civil War comes. you know the city of Natchez itself is relatively unscathed because it it surrenders. Um, you know Farragut comes up the river and the city says, "Okay, just don't just don't burn us down." Right. Um, and but coming from the but that's from the riverside, right? Coming from the the, the land side, uh, sort of the Natchez Trace side, you had troops who would come in and. Basically, when they get to Natchez and they get to Forks of the Road, you know, they liberate the enslaved people. Um, A lot of it, men who had been formerly enslaved are then recruited into the Union Army. So we're getting into sort of 1863 by this point. Um, And one of the things that they do, one of the first things that one of these units of colored troops does is they receive orders from their commanding officers. They get to Forks of the Road and he says, tear it down, tear it all down. And what they do is they go in and there's these stories about you know the, the, the colored troops going in. T- they spent all night tearing down the slave pens at the forks of the road by hand, right? They tear it down and there's stories of them sort of telling the stories of what happened to them, what happened to their families. And the, the, the image in my mind of them doing this, of them just all night long tearing down the slave pens and talking about how they'd come to be where they were. I mean, it, it gives me chills just to talk about it. And of course, what they do is they take all the wood and they they turn it into barracks for, for themselves. So they tear down the slave pens and they rebuild barracks for Union troops who are then gonna carry on the mission of, of bringing slavery to an end.
0: It's a great story. It's one of many of the stories that you tell. The book is called The Ledger and the Chain, How Domestic Slave Traders Shaped America. Joshua Rothman, thank you for talking with us today.
1: Thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed it.
0: Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hempel, the most storied Black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin, and thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi.